Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval, terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Today marks 20 years since emergency responders found a murdered woman inside of a burning home in Kill Devil Hills. The victim was 33-year-old Denise Johnson. You wouldn't know it looking at this home that something terrible happened here 20 years ago, a horrible crime that is yet to be solved. I remember seeing heavy black smoke up in the air. I just remember a pool of blood and her laying in it. We knew obviously something was way wrong. This wasn't just a routine call. On July 13, 1997, someone brutally murdered 33-year-old Denise Johnson inside her childhood home in North Carolina, then set it on fire. For 22 years, Johnson's killer has eluded police, living among us undetected. This is Counterclock, the investigation into the unsolved murder of Denise Johnson. I'm your host, Delia D'Ambra. Denise Johnson's case has been passed down through at least four detectives as people retired and eventually left the Kill Devil Hills Police Department. In 1997, there were just a couple of police officers on the entire force. Eventually, the cold case has landed on the desk of Captain John Towler. Towler is a veteran of the police department and was a patrol officer at the time of Denise's murder in 1997. I break out the case and sit down with the guy and talk about it. So, you know, at some point, we'll either solve it or it's gonna be handed down to the next person. So there's two guys now that are at least familiar with the outline of the case and, you know, would pick up the ball if something happened to me. Seven years ago, Towler spearheaded a video campaign to stir up new leads and draw attention to the cold case. It is the 1997 unsolved murder of Denise Johnson that cast the longest shadow over the Outer Banks. That's Towler's voice, introducing the 25-minute YouTube video that the police department released in 2012. And since then, that video has had more than 100,000 views. The hope is that people who have information about this case will come forward and answer the lingering questions surrounding this tragedy. 
Now, I've watched the entire video several times through, start to finish. My reason is, it has something that this podcast will never get firsthand. An interview with the first homicide detective on Denise's case, a man named Jim Mulford. Mulford was the lead investigator on the Johnson case from day one. He knew it probably the best of anyone. But unfortunately, he died not long after the YouTube video came out in 2012. But I'm going to play a little bit of his interview for you. There's some music playing underneath the clips, but for the most part, it's crystal clear what Mulford has to say. I'm Jim Mulford. I moved to the Outer Banks in 1974. Then in July of 86, I started with the Kildover Hills Police Department, and I stayed with them for 20 years. What Jim Mulford knows about the crime scene and everything that happened in the investigation after Mark Evans and Glenn Rainey discovered Denise murdered is critical to solving the case now. I was called at home sometime before 5 a.m. on July 13th. And the call I got, or the call I remember getting, was of a structure fire on Norfolk Street. So I get up and put shorts and a t-shirt on and go to a structure fire and find out that it's also a homicide. Just like everyone else who responded to Denise's house the morning of the crime, Mulford wasn't anticipating what he'd find. Denise's uh, case was different, being that it was a a murder plus an arson combined. Uh, One appeared to, the arson apparently was trying to cover up the murder. My initial impression of of the scene was that this was not gonna be very difficult. Denise Johnson was well known. She was working in a local restaurant. It was gonna be simply find out who she was with that night or the night before and that it would be, I honestly felt like it would be done and wrapped up that day. I didn't think this would be a a crime that would go on for so long, unsolved. As Mulford keeps answering questions in this taped interview, I can kind of sense the frustration he has about how little progress the investigation made in the first few days. After about three days, I realized I were not just me, but we all weren't making any headway. We we didn't have any solid suspects. The police department treated this case as their number one priority. Um, I was assigned solely to the case for as long as I needed and had all the resources of the department and the town and for whatever I needed or the manpower I needed or equipment that I needed and we just stayed on it until everything, all, all, all our leads just, just ended. They never, we had nothing to hold on to. Even in 2012, when this taped interview took place, Mulford still seemed really bothered that no leads ever went anywhere. To help make me more familiar with Jim Mulford, I contacted his widow, Barbara. I wanted to better understand Mulford's approach to the homicide investigation. It consumed a great deal of his time and his thoughts. He believed that he followed every lead possible. How did those years ever wear on him or did he ever feel any regret for anything? I can say definitely yes, he felt regret about not being able to close that case. 
It was something that haunted him that he could not get an answer to a lot of these questions. And just like her husband, Barbara remembers vividly the morning of Denise's murder. I do recall we got the call very early in the morning. He was the detective on calls, and, you know, the phone rings. I can't remember exactly what time. I'm thinking it was around 5 a.m. And I didn't think too much about it at the time because... This was more normal. When they were on call, you get calls at all times of the night. It wasn't until later on in the day, I believe I called him to ask about, you know, what we were going to do for dinner. And he let me know that he would probably not be home until late that night. Jim didn't return home until the next day. And he was only there a short time before heading back out to work the case. Pretty much nothing shocked him. He'd been in law enforcement since the early 70s, so there wasn't too much that completely shocked him. I was surprised, scared. It took me a long time in my relationship with Jim to get used to not being scared every time he left the house. As Barbara and I talked and I learned more about the effort that her husband had put into trying to solve the case— From everything I was hearing from her, it seemed that it exhausted him right up until his death just a few years ago. I can say definitely, yes, he felt regret about not being able to close that case. When we would be at social gatherings or other places where we would see other police officers, sometimes that would come up, you know, that that case, the Johnson murder, you know, they would have some conversations about it. Every once in a while, it seemed like somebody decided to think that they had a lead or they knew who did it. And he'd get that information and try and follow up on it, but it never led anywhere. That was the only murder that he had that was unsolved. I guess on the one side, it would break my heart if it got solved now and he hadn't been around to help do that. But I know it would be a help to the family and in many ways a help to the whole community to know that there isn't somebody out there that committed this crime. Anybody who thought that they knew something about someone that saw something, you know, he would go and follow up on it. So I think the investigation went as well and as complete as it could possibly be. Whoever did this with the fire that happened in the house and destroying most of the evidence, you know, that was the big thing that prevented, you know, this case from being solved because of all the evidence that was destroyed in the fire. The fire. It's a part of this homicide that we'll keep coming back to because even though it destroyed a lot of the scene, it can tell us so much. This murder, combined with the fire, made the case too big for just one department, and Jim Mulford knew that. Kill Devil Hill's police department was, and still is, a small operation. 
Within hours of the murder, Jim Mulford called in help from a state law enforcement agency to help handle all of the complexities and chaos surrounding this case. For 22 years, the investigation has remained in the hands of Kill Devil Hills Police, but detectives from the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation, also known as the SBI, assisted the department. The lead agent from the SBI on the Johnson homicide back in 1997 is a man named Donnie Varnell. Well, I was the lead agent, and I guess in a way I would have been called, I would have been considered the lead investigator. I had worked with Jim, you know, the chief, everybody before. We were, you know, we were not only investigators, we were, you know, we were friends. Varnell has recently worked as a full-time detective for the Dare County Sheriff's Office, the largest law enforcement agency in the Outer Banks of North Carolina. He retired from the SBI years after Denise's murder, but to this day, he still assists with the cold case, he says, when he can. I get very frustrated with unsolved cases if I'm involved. I'm not used to that. I'm, I'm the guy that is able to always find the answer. And so that's one of the reasons this case has been... I mean, with me, this case never leaves. I always talk about it. If I run into the right detective, you know, we always brought this case up because Mm -hmm. it just always was very difficult to think that we couldn't find who was responsible. For a case of this size, I mean, we interviewed so many people. We ran down so many leads. Part of the process is when you're able to, you put people together and you go through the entire thing again. You know, you try to read every interview again and especially bringing outside eyes onto it. From day one and now looking at it now, what were some of the things to this day maybe that still stick out to you as to how or, I don't know, it went cold? I mean, you go where the evidence and the investigative actions are taking you. You know, you never try to go, okay, this person is the suspect and we can't look anywhere else. But if someone calls and says, Delia said she killed someone, well, you know, you got to go run that down. We hit the road running, and we had, I mean, there was literally, I'm sure, over a dozen people involved. There was multiple SBI agents involved. And so in every investigation, especially homicide investigation, there is this flooding of attention to start with where you're trying to run down everything. And, of course, the longer it goes, the fewer people that are working the case. I mean, that is, you know, resources are finite. It's extraordinarily frustrating as an investigator. I mean, especially an investigator that really, you know, that really thinks they do everything correctly. Or, you know, you're trying as hard as you can, and you sometimes you just felt like it's right here somewhere, you know. When the crime happened, Varnell, like many major crimes detectives, was balancing a busy caseload and other active cases. So over time, Varnell and the SBI had to slide Denise's case further back on their desks. They were not the lead agency investigating it. They were just assisting Kill Devil Hills. There comes a point that, you know, you've interviewed 100 people, you've run down every lead you can possibly find, and then you get another case and another case. And, you know, then you've got 20 years of that. And we never forget these cases. That's a problem. You know, that's the part. We never forget these cases. But, of course, you're always getting new cases and new cases. And once you get removed out of it, it gets into, like, a process. Like, where does it fall in the process of your investigations? If I ride by that area... I assure you, it's the first thing on my mind. I mean, I always remember a certain gas station that I drive by. I always remember a certain road I ride down. I mean, I know that brings back that case because that's just a trigger for me. You know, the family, this is a tragedy that never leaves their mind. You know, that they think of it always because it is their tragedy. This is the worst thing in their life. 
and they're not supposed to forget. Varnell, like Jim Mulford and Captain John Towler, believes that among the hundreds of hours of interviews and pieces of evidence, there's still a leaf left unturned or a person who knows something they're not saying. You're going anywhere that the information takes you. So the amount of work that was done, even for a murder case, was massive. Maybe we spoke to the person that was responsible and we couldn't put all the pieces together to prove it. On July 13th, Jim Mulford and Agent Varnell ordered a full forensic sweep of the crime scene. They realized really quickly that, thanks to the fires, they had a big mess on their hands. The act of putting out a fire, in and of itself, of course, disturbs and changes how the evidence is laid out in the crime scene, right? I mean, you just can't blow a water hose into a house that's on fire without moving stuff around. There was a lot of issues when they brought it around. I mean, and... I mean, and it sticks with you, the image of her being outside in the yard sticks with you. I mean, I've been to a lot of homicides, but you remember one of them, and that's a horrific sight. You can't see that kind of stuff and not be moved. All of the men tell me a renowned crime scene tech from the SBI processed the house. John Taller says the man leading that operation was specifically chosen because he was the best. There was an agent named Dennis Honeycutt who was their crime scene guru. And he talked about the best of the best. This guy, the sort of euphemism is he could lift a fingerprint out of thin air. You know, he was that good. Dennis Honeycutt, a man with a mind that could pick apart a crime scene. I knew I had to find him. Hey, look at you. Florist by day, student by night. Student by day, nurse by night. Since 1998, Penn State World Campus has led the charge in online education, offering access to more than 175 in-demand programs taught by our expert faculty. We offer flexible schedules, scholarships, and tuition plans to help you reach your educational goals online. Penn State World Campus delivers on your time. Click the ad or visit worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. That's worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. I looked up crime scene tech Dennis Honeycutt and found out he retired from the North Carolina SBI years ago. He's now a current investigator for the Colorado State Bureau of Investigation. I called and emailed back and forth with his secretary for months. Eventually, Honeycutt declined to be interviewed for this podcast and this case. On the day of the crime, while detectives handled the crime scene and evidence, Denise's body went to the state medical examiner's office more than two hours away in Greenville, North Carolina, for a forensic autopsy. I made a call again to the first responding Kill Devil Hills police officer, Mark Evans. Coincidentally, in 1997, Evans says he was the representative for Kill Devil Hills police inside the room with the medical examiner on the day of Denise's autopsy. I was in that room with the pathologist and I helped him conduct the complete autopsy on Miss Johnson. And that's something I'm going to take with me as I retire and move into another career that, you know, having somebody held accountable for doing such a horrific crime, he was revealing a lot of stuff that led me to believe that this was a violent attack inside of that house. And, and you know, she lived for several minutes inside of the house before the smoke and the heat took her life. I do recall that she had several cut marks, scratches, abrasions, whatnot, and several wounds about her body that quickly indicated that she was fighting for her life. Obviously, it was a struggle going on. 
Because Denise's case is still technically active, the four-page document that I received in the mail is all that's available to anyone who's not law enforcement, and much of it is actually handwritten. It stated there were cut and stab wounds around Denise's head and neck. Her official manner of death was homicide, with contributing factors of carbon monoxide poisoning. This was good information, but it was a note at the bottom section of the first page where it defined Denise's manner of death that really got my attention. It was marked as reviewed. Handwriting on the page indicated that someone in the medical examiner's office reviewed the document on September 5th, 1997, weeks after the crime, and they made a scribbled note that they determined Denise had high levels of carbon monoxide in her lungs. Carbon monoxide is a hazardous gas that results from incomplete burning of material containing carbon, things like gas, kerosene, oil, propane, or wood. In Denise's case, the fires inside her house burned, but not entirely. The finding in the autopsy report made me wonder. Did Denise live long enough to inhale smoke after her initial stab wound? I gave first responding firefighter Glenn Rainey a call because I wanted to see what he thought about whether Denise could have still been alive when the fires were set. Well, that indicates to me that she was still breathing at the time the fire was lit. But I question that, and I've heard the same thing from the detective and, you know, from the autopsy report through third hand. But with the incision in her throat, there was not much breathing going on after that. That was done. Just not possible unless the fire was lit and then the final act occurred. This was a huge bombshell. Knowing that Denise could have been alive and inhaling smoke then been stabbed, it feels like it means something, but I don't know what yet. Other interesting notes on page two of the autopsy file were that Denise had jewelry on. A ring was found on her hand, meaning whoever killed her likely wasn't interested in robbing her. There was one finding I searched for in the report that was inexplicably absent. The summary didn't include any information about whether or not Denise was sexually assaulted. Mark Evans doesn't know why that's unavailable. He told me that he saw no sign of an assault during the autopsy, and that had been noted in the full report. As far as the sexual assault, any type of an assault that occurred from a sexual nature, he pretty much kind of ruled that I that it didn't occur. Didn't have any alcohol or drugs in her system. She was not sexually assaulted. So you start trying to rule out all the possibilities of it. Why? Why did this occur? I wanted a closer look at that for myself, so I also requested Denise's toxicology report from 1997. And Mark Evans was right. No alcohol or drugs were in Denise's system. And armed with my own copy of the autopsy, I flew to North Carolina to talk with Mark Moore about it in person, and work on the case from the ground in Kill Devil Hills. I arrived early in the morning to the police headquarters in Kill Devil Hills. Hey, how are you? Nice to meet you. Mark was in the process of filing his last reports and cleaning up his office. His retirement was just around the corner. When we finally got to talking, he reflected on Denise's case and the weight it's been on him all these years. It's something that's still near and dear to me to have it solved. I mean, it's, you know, somebody has got to know something. Somebody should know something here in this area. We owe it to Denise, and we owe it to her family. We owe it to a sister, and we won't stop until we get it solved. Yeah. You know, time will continue to move. Different officers will come and go in this agency, but we won't stop until it's solved.
While we talked, I pulled out my copy of the autopsy summary, and we got right into it. Was there ever anything found under her nails that you remember from the autopsy? I do recall that from the autopsy. I went the next day, and, and Dr. Hudson had mentioned, because I helped hold her fingers as he was clipping her nails and putting her nails and such inside of the bag to check for anything, and I remember him stating how long her nails were. I don't recall that there was anything, any evidence that was at that moment, but I remember holding her fingers and as the doctor cut off her fingernails and put them inside of a small bag, he was answering questions as to why he was taking clippings from the fingers and to find potential, you know, DNA off of her. If Denise's fingernails were taken, that presented a good question. Where are they and what was underneath them? If nothing was found in 1997, could that change in 2019? These were questions Donnie Johnson, Denise's sister, has been asking for years. Hey, look at you. Florist by day, student by night. Student by day, nurse by night. Since 1998, Penn State World Campus has led the charge in online education, offering access to more than 175 in-demand programs taught by our expert faculty. We offer flexible schedules, scholarships, and tuition plans to help you reach your educational goals online. Penn State World Campus delivers on your time. Click the ad or visit worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. That's worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. Donnie Johnson, Denise's sister, has had questions for more than two decades about what was retrieved from beneath Denise's fingernails. I think all of this stuff needs to be re-examined. You know, they say they took you know, a swab and a hair sample from everybody they interviewed. Well, they need to retest all that. When I sat inside Kill Devil Hills Police Department talking with Mark Evans, I couldn't help but wonder— was evidence for the case nearby and who kept track of it after 22 years. At one point, police released that detectives had collected 59 pieces of evidence from the crime scene. I called Kill Devil Hills Police Captain John Taller to clarify. He's currently in charge of the cold case. As far as details of the case beyond what's already released, there's nothing really that you know is going to be new that I can talk about or any details that... I can release you know, that are case-specific facts. And again, that's to protect the integrity of the case and not to stonewall anybody or just be, no, 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 we know something that you don't know. Has it ever been the police department's desire every five or ten years to come back and look at key pieces of evidence and try and retest? Or what would need to be the process for that to happen? Because it's still an act. We do review it. We do review what we have and look at things to see if they would be something that could be tested. My curiosity about the forensic evidence sent me back to North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation Special Agent Donnie Varnell. I wanted to know how critical he believed retesting evidence could be in the Johnson murder. There may be some, you know, advancement in evidence procedures that, you know, you might be able to take advantage of in these type of cases. You're talking about a case that's you know over 20 years old. The ability to test evidence may have changed also. It is a matter of deciding what can be tested and getting that information or that evidence back into the system and that kind of stuff. So has anything ever been put back in the system, as Varnell said? And more importantly, would it even matter? That's a question I asked John Towler to answer. The knowledge of how DNA you know, degrades and be stored over time. 
was completely different back then than it is now. So they've gotten more sensitive. They're able to find DNA on smaller samples, and it doesn't have to necessarily be fluid. It could just be, I mean, they can pull DNA off of a fingerprint sometimes. If you're like me, used to watching TV shows where DNA and science and people with test tubes wearing rubber gloves always seem to catch the killer, the answer to Denise's case seems pretty simple. Find the foreign DNA at her crime scene or under her nails and follow that. But there's one small problem. You can have your DNA, but the question is, what are you comparing it to? And if you don't have anything to compare it to, then having their DNA is not doesn't serve any probative value. And I'm not saying that we don't have things to compare it to, but we would have to be able to successfully DNA extract from those items. See what I'm saying? Take everybody's DNA in the world doesn't get you closer unless you have a match for their DNA at the scene. At this point in our conversation, the question for Denise's case became obvious. Was there ever a DNA profile obtained from Denise's scene amongst everything that was there? Um, hmm. I think that's a big question in people's mind is, well, was there a single person of certain genetic code that was located there? So I'm going to leave that one unanswered because if I answer yes, then it goes one way. And if I answer no, then whoever killed her knows that we don't have their DNA and then that takes off any pressure that they may have. So no comment on that one. No comment. Those words said a lot of things. Either no one left DNA behind or the killer isn't in a criminal database and has never been arrested in 22 years. Or there's no longer enough DNA to test. DNA or not, Taller is still convinced of one thing that will without a doubt identify a killer. In a case like this where we do not have a suspect or someone who's been charged or anything like that, What's going to be critical to identifying them is they will have knowledge of the crime scene that nobody else will have. So telling me too much, Taller says, could hurt more than help. It's a standard response from police, and to be honest, it makes sense. We all want to see Denise's killer caught, and I don't want to give out too much information that could let that person get away with it forever. But just because no one has been arrested doesn't mean investigators didn't question certain people more than others. 911, what's your emergency? Before Glenn Rainey or Mark Evans ever saw Denise's house on that morning, there was someone else there, a man, who reported he saw flames and smoke coming out of Denise's home. Mark Evans remembers him very well. For him to make that phone call like he did, indicates to me he was either on that street or close by or several houses down for him to go back and call phone it in and be there by the time I arrived. The final page of Denise's autopsy summary mentions him too. Passerby saw smoke from residents. On arrival, fire department. Victim found nude lying on side, head in bathroom. Pulled outside on her back by fire department. Fire reportedly had been set in three locations in the house. I asked Denise's sister Donnie about this person. He was presently going to work, picking up somebody for work or something. And he just happened to be driving by. Happened to be driving by and saw smoke, is what he says. And I know the police, you know, were on him for a while, and then he got a lawyer and cleared up. 
did he have any acquaintance with Denise ever that you know of? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He had tried to date her, but she wouldn't. Next time on Counterclock. When they showed us these pieces of evidence, we were like, wait a minute. Where did they come from? Because they were Denise's. And only she would have this. There was no reason for him to have this, especially one of them anyway. If you're enjoying this series, follow us on social media to get the behind-the-scenes look at the investigation. We're on Twitter at at CounterClockPod, and on Instagram, look for the handle CounterClockPodcast. CounterClock is an AudioChuck original podcast. Ashley Flowers is the executive producer, and all reporting and hosting is done by me, Delia D'Ambra. Hey, look at you. Florist by day, student by night, student by day, nurse by night. Since 1998, Penn State World Campus has led the charge in online education, offering access to more than 175 in-demand programs taught by our expert faculty. We offer flexible schedules, scholarships, and tuition plans to help you reach your educational goals online. Penn State World Campus delivers on your time. Click the ad or visit worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. That's worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. Chapter 1, Wayfair welcomes you to the neighborhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the neighborhood," she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trinsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus, hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter 2. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home.